Well, the challenges between us and China, I think, are one of suspicion, based on the fact that we don't know much, and two, concern about the growth of rate, the rate of growth in China, which is enormous. And to recognize that China's come out of a century of turmoil and now has become a, a major world player. I think Chinese people are working on expanding their influence to the world, mainly uh, using their soft powers tools, such as uh, in education, culture, foreign aids, and uh, lately the Olympic game to attract people to China's rising status. I was in Shenzhen a couple of years ago, which uh, 30 years ago was a small fishing village on the South China Sea. Uh, today, uh, it's grown as a special economic zone to be a city of about 12 million people with uh, skyscrapers. Uh, you would think you're downtown Manhattan. The amount of change is just, just astounding and the pace of change is astounding. They could put in a four or eight lane highway in the time that it would take uh, an American uh, city to put in a stoplight. Um, so pace of change, the scope of change, absolutely astounding. I feel like, and I have felt like living in China, that often they were overprotective, exaggerated things to the point where it was counterproductive and I think that undermines their legitimacy and it undermines their credibility and it undermines their potential as a country. If I could speak to the leaders of China, it would be to continue to build upon that free economy they've allowed to happen. It will provide jobs, it will provide growth, it will provide more opportunities for them to be world players in so many different ways. 欢迎来到伊恩·汤普森国际事务论坛，让内布拉斯加走向世界。Good evening. I am Lloyd Ambrosius, the Samuel Clark Waugh Distinguished Professor of International Relations in the Department of History at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. It is my pleasure, as chair of the uh, Ian Thompson uh, Program Committee, uh, to welcome you to this uh, particular lecture of the uh, series in 2009-2010. Uh, uh, the forum uh, founded by and named in honor of E.N. Jack Thompson, is, de is designed to engage Nebraska students and all Nebraskans in important issues affecting us in the contemporary world. We are very grateful to the Thompson family and the Cooper Foundation for their continuing generous support of this lecture series. We are also thankful to the LEAD Center for its partnership with the Thompson Forum uh, and to the Nebraska Educational Tele Telecommunications, uh, Cable Channel 21, KRNU Radio, and the University of Nebraska uh, Bookstore for their support. Before introducing our speaker this evening, I would like to remind you of our next lecture for this season. Richard Bihar 
will speak about China in Africa, the new scramble, on Tuesday evening, January 26th, uh, here in the Lead Center at 7 p.m. At the conclusion of tonight's lecture, you will have the opportunity to ask questions of our speaker. Uh, please write down your questions on the cards provided and pass them to the ushers. After the lecture and after the question and answer session is over, uh, our speaker will be in the green room uh, where she will sign uh, the books that you can purchase uh, in the lobby, her recent book on uh, China, uh, which is the subject of, of her lecture this evening. Uh, now it is my honor to introduce Professor Susan L. Shirk, a political science uh, professor at the University of California, San Diego's Graduate School of International Relations and Pacific Studies. She serves as the director of the University of California's Institute on Global Conflict and Cooperation. Her latest book, China, Fragile Superpower, published in 2007, explores China's rise in recent decades as a global superpower as viewed from the United States and elsewhere in the world, while its internal governance by the Communist Party remained fragile as viewed by its leaders. Uh, paradoxically, China's growing influence abroad has coincided with insecurity at home. Professor Shirk brings firsthand experience to her scholarship. During the late 1990s, she was responsible for U.S.-Chinese relations in the Department of State, where she served as a Deputy Assistant Secretary of State. She knows many of today's uh, Chinese leaders personally. Now join me in welcoming Susan Shirk to Nebraska. Well, thank you so much. It's really a great pleasure to be with you today on the day when President Obama is taking off to visit Asia. He will be going to Japan, then to Singapore, then to Shanghai and Beijing, and concluding his trip in Seoul. So this is our president's first visit to China. Of course, he has great Asian roots but it uh, is a visit that has been eagerly anticipated by the Chinese people and the Chinese leadership, and um, I know I will be glued to the screen to see the images of our president in China, remembering back in the early 1970s when President Nixon went to China in February of 1972. Well, my own history with China is as a China scholar. And back in 1971, even before President Nixon, here's a very young Susan Shirk shaking the hand of Premier Zhou Enlai. That was my first visit to China right after the ping pong team. And of course, these were the days of the Cultural Revolution when China was still in great turmoil, the turmoil launched by Mao Zedong. And I've been very fortunate as a China scholar uh, to also have the opportunity to serve in government 
from 1997 to 2000. Uh, it's a very rare opportunity for a scholar to do this, to actually participate in history and not just studying it. Well, when I came to Washington in 1997, I was very apprehensive about the possibility of a military conflict between the United States and China. And that's because just the year before, in 1996, the two countries had come into an eyeball-to-eyeball -eyeball confrontation over the island of Taiwan, which of course has governed itself independently since it lost the Civil War in 1949, but which Beijing, the officials and the public in China, believe is actually part of China. What happened in 96 is that after the United States allowed Taiwan President Li Donghui to visit uh, the United States, which seemed to imply some recognition of him as the leader of a country, the Chinese uh, were very upset, and to show how angry they were, they launched massive military exercises and shot missile tests outside two Taiwan Ports. The United States sent two aircraft carrier battle groups to the vicinity around Taiwan, and the Chinese backed down. But what would happen the next time? Escalation has a life all its own, and many wars occur even when no one wants them to happen. As I worked in government to try to lay a foundation so that we would not have that kind of horrific conflict between the United States and China, I kept noticing how China's leaders seemed to be so focused on their own domestic politics and how nervous they seemed to be about domestic threats rather than international ones. Now, of course, in the United States, this was the Clinton administration, so we were also experiencing a lot of domestic politics surrounding our policy toward China. But, you know, it's very different in China. In China, uh, in America, our politicians have to worry about winning the next election. But in China, uh, there's so much more at stake their politicians have to worry about the survival of Communist Party rule. You know, when I was writing this book, I would tell my American friends and my Chinese friends that I was writing a, a book on domestic politics and how it shapes China's behavior in the world, and it was going to be called China Fragile Superpower. Well, my American friends would react by saying, hmm, fragile. Why fragile? They were puzzled by that. But when I would tell my Chinese friends the title was Fragile Superpower, every single one of them answered, why superpower? What's interesting about that to me is not just that they don't yet see China as being all that powerful, 
but that not one of them questioned the premise that China was internally fragile. Now this fragility came through most clearly to me in uh, a very traumatic experience I had while I was serving in government. One evening in May 1999, I received a phone call on my way home from work that the Chinese embassy in Belgrade had been struck by a bomb from a U.S. bomber flying as part of a NATO mission in Yugoslavia. I assumed that this was just a stray fragment, you know, collateral damage, but I soon learned that horror of horrors we had actually targeted the embassy, mistaking it for a Yugoslav military facility, so we had targeted the wrong building, and we struck it with five bombs and killed three Chinese journalists and injured 20 others. So my instinct as I drove back to the State Department was we had to apologize profusely from the president on down. Because I knew that if we didn't show that how sincerely and deeply sorry we were, the Chinese would never let us forget this incident. Just as they have never let the Japanese forget their failure to apologize adequately for the brutal occupation of China during World War II. So we had President Clinton try to call President Jiang Zemin right away. President Jiang Zemin wouldn't take the call. Then Secretary Albright that night went to the Chinese embassy to apologize. President Clinton apologized on television, as you see here. He also signed the condolence book from the Chinese embassy to apologize. We tried to send an envoy presidential envoy to China to apologize, but the Chinese said, no, don't come now. Finally, President Jiang Zemin took the call and Clinton apologized again. We paid compensation for the victims' losses and the building. But all these efforts were in vain, all these efforts to apologize. Soon protesters were swarming into Beijing and other cities in China where we have consulates, and they were attacking the U.S. Embassy and those consulates. Uh, the Communist Party had told the people immediately after the, uh, the bombing that it was a brazen and intentional act on the part of the United States. The Communist Party also arranged the buses for the outraged students to go to the embassy to protest. The police stood by while the students threw bricks and rocks and Molotov cocktails at the buildings, but the police prevented the students from entering the buildings. So what was going on? What explains this uh, Chinese behavior? Well, first of all, in order to put ourselves in the shoes of President Jiang Zemin during this crisis, and I think that's really what we should always do in our diplomatic relations, and what I try to do in this book is to 
allow us to put ourselves in the shoes of Chinese leaders and see how both their domestic situation and the international situation appears to them. So from Jiang Zemin's perspective, it was critical, the timing. This bombing occurred in May of 1999. Less than a month before, Jiang Zemin had awakened and the other Chinese leaders to find 10,000 members of a spiritual sect called the Falun Gong surrounding the leadership compound, Zhongnan Hai, where they live and work. Without any warning, this organization had staged a peaceful protest with 10,000 people using cell phones and internet uh, to petition to be recognized as a legitimate group. Well, needless to say, uh, China's leaders were horrified and very frightened by this. And in fact, I have been told by insiders in the leadership circle that the night of the Belgrade embassy bombing, President Jiang Zemin stayed up late writing a memo, not on how to handle this crisis with the United States, but instead how to suppress this organization, the Falun Gong, which had organized this protest a month before. And I speculate that in Jiang Zemin's mind, these two threats, kind of the United States humiliating China by bombing the embassy and of the Falun Gong kind of blurred together. It's also an important factor in the timing that shortly after the Belgrade embassy bombing, it would be June 4th, 1999. And I'm sure many people recognize the significance of June 4th. That was the 10th anniversary of Tiananmen. The pro-democracy protests by students that had occurred not just in Beijing's Tiananmen Square, but also in 130 other cities throughout China. And that almost toppled the government before the military violently suppressed them. Well, in China, it's traditionally, these kinds of anniversaries become the occasion for protests, especially student protests. So Jiang Zemin and the other leaders must have worried that the students who were preparing some kind of protest activity for June 4th would just push up the date of those protests and that they would blame the Communist Party for the fact that the Americans had bombed the Chinese embassy in Belgrade blaming them for being so weak that the Americans would feel that they could attack the embassy without worrying about the response from the Chinese leadership and that therefore they would march into Tiananmen Square or to the leadership compound to demonstrate after the Belgrade embassy bombing and threaten the regime once again. So that explains the buses. The buses were there to take this tidal wave of protest, wave of protest 
so that it wouldn't target the leaders themselves and instead deflect it toward the Americans. In other words, China's leaders risked a confrontation with the powerful United States in order to protect themselves from domestic opposition. So based on this experience and others that were not quite as traumatic but were along the same lines, I started to see a pattern of acute political insecurity about domestic threats on the part of the Chinese leadership. You know, to us outside of China, the country looks so successful, so powerful as it rises economically and militarily that we sort of see its leaders also as larger than life. But I believe that in their own minds, they feel like scared children trying to stay on top of a society that has been drastically changed, as you heard in the introduction tonight, drastically changed uh, from the China, the poor backward China of Mao Zedong, and that they see all the latent threats to Communist Party rule in this transformed China. So this insecurity drives all their choices in foreign policy as well as domestic policy. So what I'd really like to concentrate on tonight is why China's leaders feel so insecure. If, if things are going so well, if the country is so successful, this year China is recovering ahead of other countries after the global financial crisis, it looks uh, certain to achieve over 8% growth this year. Why are Chinese leaders still so nervous? Well, you have to go back to 1989, again, to Tiananmen, because a lot of the reasons that they feel so anxious stem from that experience. That was a very close call for China's leaders because they had these demonstrations throughout China. The leadership split on how to respond to the protests and only because the military came in and forcibly put down the demonstrations did the regime remain standing. So in that very same year, was the collapse of the Berlin Wall, as we've just been talking about over the last few weeks, because once again, it's November, that anniversary of the Berlin Wall. And what happened in 89 was the wall fell, and communist regimes in Eastern Europe and the Soviet Union started to disintegrate. In this very same year that China's leaders had such a close call themselves, no wonder that since 1989, they have worried that their own days in power are numbered. Another reason they're so anxious and insecure is that China's leaders of today know that they don't have the personal charisma, the personal following or prestige of their predecessors, Mao Zedong 
or Deng Xiaoping, who were members of the founding generation. People like President Jiang Zemin and Hu Jintao, who are pictured at the bottom of that page, they're pretty much colorless technocrats and organization men without much charisma, without much real appeal, even though Hu Jintao here, you see, trying to show that he has charisma, just like Mao Zedong. But people are not persuaded. Most important, they recognize that 35 years of economic reform and opening to the world have turned Chinese society upside down and created latent challenges to communist rule. I mean, never before in history have you had a communist party trying to rule in such a vibrant, open market economy. Now, we all know the story of China's economic rise, so I won't review it uh, in any detail. But China is now well on its way to becoming the second largest economy in the world. Uh, its GDP per capita, even with such a large population, has risen uh, dramatically as well. And in fact, this is absolutely unprecedented that any economy has increased its per capita income as fast as China has for as long as China has. Of course, China remains a poor country. Here you see per capita, GDP per capita for uh, China and the United States compared. So even you know, at the end of a decade or so, China will probably never reach the level of individual living standards that the United States has, but it will be a very big economy and a very powerful economy. And all of the market reforms and opening that have created this growth um, create political threats from the standpoint of the leaders. And this insecurity that China's leaders feel is out in the open. It's transparent. They talk about it all the time. They use the euphemism social stability to describe the need to maintain the Communist Party in power. And you can see here Premier Wen Xiaobao a couple of years ago made this statement, to think about why danger looms will ensure one's security, to think about why chaos occurs will ensure one's peace, and to think about why a country falls will ensure one's survival. So the survival of Communist Party rule in China is viewed as problematic from the standpoint of China's leaders, and everything they do is designed to prolong its lifespan. Chinese society is also dramatically changed by the fact that people work in the private sector, not in the state sector anymore, and that people are on the move. You've got this, more than 200 million people have moved from the countryside to the cities in a massive historic exodus 
of migration and urbanization. So what does this mean? This means that the Communist Party can no longer keep track of people the way it used to, much less control them. People also have so much more information than they used to. And that's because um, actually now, I, you know, I have to keep revising this slide practically every week because now it's almost 300 million people who get their information over the internet in China. And at the same time, there's been this big change. Used to be only propaganda, state-run uh, newspapers and television stations, and now you have all these commercial newspapers, magazines, television stations. And uh, there is still censorship. The party still tries to control content to a certain extent. But the interests of the media are to run exciting stories that will attract audiences because they're in commercial competition with one another. So they have an incentive to push the limits of that censorship. As a result, Chinese leaders can no longer keep people ignorant of what's being said or what's being done in Washington or Tokyo or Taipei or even in other parts of the country. Another problem that China's leaders worry about as a possible source of a rebellion in China is the fact that inequality has grown so much. You know, uh, in America, we worry about our wealth gap, which is larger than it has been in uh, history. But in China, it's even wider. Uh, by using this measure of the Gini coefficient, which is an internationally accepted measure of inequality with zero being perfect equality and one being uh, all the wealth owned by one individual, uh, in China, their Gini is somewhere between 47, 0 0.47, 0 0.49, and in the United States, it's 0.41. So they have become quite unequal. They have this su substantial group of people in the cities, especially along the coast, who are very, very wealthy and living a very lavish lifestyle, and yet they still have uh, you know, many tens and millions of people who are living in dire poverty, and they worry that this inequality could lead to a future Chinese revolution. Now, in order to stave off that kind of revolution, the current leadership is engaging in what you might call a kind of compassionate communism. Uh, the Hu Jintao and Wen Jiabao have launched a major populist effort to demonstrate that the Communist Party cares about the poor and uh, builds a harmonious society, they call it, which is a Confucian term that they've revived. Now, Wen Jiabao, you see him there comforting 
an individual who's been struck by misfortune for one reason or another. And you see Wen Jiabao on television frequently running around trying to reassure and comfort people. And he's become a very effective media politician. He puts his arm around the farmer and expresses his sympathy, kinds of, kind of tears up, a um, little bit like a Chinese Bill Clinton or something. And people really appreciate this because they feel that he's showing empathy for the have-nots in China. When disaster strikes like a big snowstorm in early 2008, Wen Jiabao scurries around the country trying to reassure people and even apologizing for the snowstorm, which I thought was a bad idea because, uh, you know, the Chinese government already has a lot on its plate, but when it takes responsibility for the weather, uh, you know, I think they're asking for trouble. But you see here, he's in a crowded railroad station in South China. He, they were very worried during the snowstorm that all these people were planning to go home for Chinese New Year. They were stranded, and it was a, potentially a volatile situation that could erupt into protest, which is what, of course, they are so deeply afraid of. Uh, when the earthquake occurred, Wen Jiabao also was omnipresent there with television crews following him, trying to show how much the leaders care about the people. So this, um, this effort to demonstrate how compassionate the party leadership is, is definitely aimed at trying to maintain party rule by reassuring people and building support among the people. Um, other types of crises, Wen Jiabao is there again with television, such as with tainted uh, milk products and baby formula. But despite all the efforts of the current government, the number of protests in China continues to increase. It's kind of hard to evaluate these numbers. Is this a large number or small number for a country the size of China? But certainly from the standpoint of the leaders, I can tell you they are tracking this very, very closely. Once I took a uh, delegation of members of Congress in to see Premier, then Premier, Zhu Rongji, and he was asked some question that had nothing to do with protests, but his answer was all about the number of blue-collar worker demonstrations there had been in the last quarter indicating to me that this was a topic very, very much on his mind. So uh, these protests occur in cities. They occur in the countryside over all sorts of issues. Most of them are small scale, quite localized, but the, it, they really contribute to the anxieties of the leadership who worry that they could spread, become bigger, and turn against the central government. Some of these protests recently have been aimed at environmental issues because China, of course, has a uh, very severe pollution problems and uh, 
so some of these demonstrations are about the poisoning of the rivers by chemical spills, runoff, um, and it's made environmental protection uh, an issue of great political importance to China's leaders. But protest activity, although the main thing they worry about, is not the only thing they worry about. Coming out of Tiananmen crisis, they, had, they drew three lessons. Prevent large-scale social unrest, but also avoid public leadership splits. Because, you know, if the party elite stays unified, they can suppress the protests, buy them off, and the regime will survive. But what happened in 1989 was that the leadership split publicly, and so this emboldened people to come out on the streets and demonstrate because they felt it was a kind of permission to do so, that it would be safe to come and demonstrate if the leadership was divided. Now the, uh, and then the third one is to keep the military loyal, and I'll have something to say about that as well. Now the risks of a leadership split. They are the greatest, of course, during a period of leadership succession. And in China, there was a peaceful turnover of the leadership in 2007 when a new, younger group of leaders came up and replaced the old, retired ones in the Standing Committee of the Politburo. And um, sorry about this slide, which didn't translate too well. But this fellow in the center, Xi Jinping, he was given the positions in the Standing Committee of the Politburo that indicate he probably is the consensus choice to succeed Hu Jintao when he steps down after serving two terms in 2012. But interestingly, just a month or so ago, there was a Central Committee plenum at which, according to precedent, Xi Jinping should have been named to the party's military commission. That's how, in order to kind of be in training to become China's preeminent leader. When Hu Jintao was in training to move up, he was named uh, to the Central Military Commission at, at about this time, just about three years before the, um, he was to ascend to the number one position. So everybody just assumed that the same thing would happen to Xi Jinping. Funny thing happened. He didn't get appointed to the military commission. Now, we don't know why that is. It may be that they've just changed the practice for some reason, but it also could be that this succession will be contested. And if it is contested, if, say, Li Keqiang or uh, one of the other in this group decides that Xi Jinping isn't really that great and I'm going to try to compete with him to be China's number one leader, 
that's when there is the risk of a public leadership split. So although leadership politics in China have become more institutionalized and more regularized than they were under Mao Zedong, the leaders still have to worry about these succession periods and how they handle them because of the, this competition, which inevitably will exist at the top in, a, in any political system. If it comes out into the open, that could be very dangerous for the survival of Communist Party rule. Well, if there are protests and the leadership splits, then the last line of defense is the military. And Hu Jintao has devoted a lot of time and energy to cultivating the support of the People's Liberation Army. He knows that without the military to watch his back and to watch the back of the entire Communist Party, that they are in a much more vulnerable position vis-a-vis -vis their own society. So they know they have to keep the military loyal. That is a domestic political imperative. And that's an important reason for these double-digit increases in China's military budget over the last 15 years or so. It's not just or even mainly, in my opinion, about domestic threats, I mean about international threats, that explains why they are giving more money to the military and modernizing their capabilities so substantially. It is largely because this is what the military wants and they have to keep the military satisfied and loyal. Now another big worry of China's insecure leaders is the whole question of nationalism. And actually, that's a major theme in my book. China's leaders know that the previous two dynasties, the Qing Dynasty and then the Republic of China, both fell to domestic political movements which in which the specific discontents, domestic discontents of particular groups were fused together by the powerful emotional force of anti-foreign nationalism. These uh, movements turned on their government for being too weak in the face of foreign aggression, foreign pressure. And so China's leaders want to make sure that the same thing doesn't happen to them. Now, nationalist emotions in China are the most intense against a few hot-button issues, namely relations with the United States, Japan, and Taiwan. Survey, surveys actually show that anti-Japanese sentiment is more is stronger, more intense by the younger generation of Chinese than their grandparents who actually lived through World War II and the Japanese uh, occupation of China. So issues related to that history remain alive to the younger generation. And in 
2005, April of 2005, there were anti-Japanese demonstrations in 30, approximately 30 cities throughout China. Now, recently, the uh, even though this nationalist sentiment toward Japan remains strong, and nationalist sentiment about the separation of Taiwan also remains strong, Chinese decision makers have been managing relations with those areas um, in a more moderate way, trying to be a little deaf to that anti-foreign uh, nationalist public opinion. So that's kind of encouraging, I would say. But then a new issue has come to the surface, and that is Tibet. In the past, the uh, Dalai Lama and the movement for greater religious and cultural autonomy in Tibet was not an issue that most people in China really cared a whole lot about. It wasn't felt as intensely as relations with Japan or Taiwan or the United States. But all that changed in March of 2008 when peaceful demonstrations in the Tibetan areas of China, not just the Tibetan Autonomous Region, but surrounding areas as well, turned violent. And Tibetans violently attacked Han shopkeepers. Photographs and videos of these violent protests were spread throughout China and the non-Tibetan Chinese, the Han Chinese, were furious. They were furious, with, not just with the Dalai Lama and the Tibetans for attacking Han Chinese, but they were furious with their own government for allowing this to happen, for the fact that the police somehow didn't stop it. They also turned against the Western media for their reporting of these demonstrations. And instead of just allowing the venting on the internet, the Chinese government actually stood up and made very tough statements, took a very tough stand on the bias of the foreign media um, and the Dalai Lama and the Tibetan movement. The outrage of public opinion in China was further fueled by what happened when pro-Tibet demonstrators roughed up the torch carrier in Paris and other places where the Olympic torch uh, parade went. And this led, in turn, to anti-French feeling on the internet in China, and you see these anti-French protests in front of the Carrefour stores and attempt to organize a boycott of French goods. Well, all of this uh, nationalist public opinion articulated on, on the internet was experienced by China's insecure foreign policymakers as a form of tremendous political pressure. And they felt that they had to take a tough stand. So their 
approach to the Tibet issue has changed as a result of this public opinion pressure, which I think is a very dangerous sign. They have elevated the Tibet issue to a core issue of sovereignty, just the same as the Taiwan issue. And when French President Sarkozy, for example, said he was going to meet the Dalai Lama at the EU meeting, he was president of the EU at the time, the Chinese actually canceled the EU-China summit to show how unhappy they were. So they have made the Tibet issue a much more important issue than it used to be uh, in order to maintain their support from the nationalist public in China. And uh, this will definitely be an issue when President Obama visits Beijing. So, you know, this, in conclusion, I'd like to say that I know that China's leaders, as they rise in power, as the country rises in power, they want to manage this rise in a peaceful way. They try to demonstrate to the world, and many ways they have, that they are a responsible power with peaceful intentions, that they are not a threat. But the question I have is will they be able to sustain it domestically in the face of increasing mass protests, intensifying nationalism, and the fact that all the news about what's happening outside of China is now available to the public? And that's the question I want to leave you with. From our side, I think that as Americans, we need to see China clearly. We need to be aware of its fragility when we make our own policies toward China. Everything Americans say and do reverberates through Chinese domestic politics. By keeping that in mind, by keeping in mind how our words and actions resonate in China, Americans can enable China's leaders to act like the responsible power they claim China is instead of acting aggressively because of the domestic predicaments they face. So thank you very much, and I look forward to your questions. that the ushers will provide and, and uh, uh, bring them, uh, the ushers will then bring them over so that we can address them uh, to Professor Shirk. Uh, while you are uh, composing your questions and before I receive them, let me uh, ask a question to begin with. Uh, earlier this evening when you spoke with the uh, Thompson Learning uh, community, uh, you uh, devoted some attention to North Korea. So let me ask you, what is China's role in relationship to North Korea and particularly in relationship to the uh, factor of nuclear weapons uh, in the hands of the North Koreans?
North Korea is a big problem for China. Uh, and the Chinese have worked very hard over the past few decades to try to persuade North Korea to follow their path of market reform and opening to the world and uh, that they don't need nuclear weapons uh, and that you can't eat nuclear weapons, that the North Korean economy is suffering terribly and that they should focus more on domestic development rather than belligerent, uh, aggressive stance toward other countries. And they've tried to do it in their own way, not by public criticism of China, they don't, I mean of North Korea, that's not Chinese style diplomacy, but through, in, basically through engaging North Korea. And of course, when they felt that there was a real risk of a conflict between the United States and North Korea back in 2003, I guess, is they actually stepped forward to establish the six-party talks and they've played a leading role in trying to manage the problem diplomatically. But they're not willing to impose harsh sanctions on North Korea. They think in the end that would be counterproductive and they don't want the regime to disappear, I think it's fair to say. They want a non-nuclear North Korea, but they want the North Korean regime to survive. And so their interests overlap with ours, but they're not the same as ours. Thank you. Uh, now we're beginning to get some questions from the audience. Uh, what percentage of Chinese are Communist Party members uh, is there a difference uh, in rural and urban areas? I think there are, I guess it's about 75, 80 million. 80? 70. 70. I need help here from my colleague. <laughs> I thought it was about 75 uh, million people are Communist Party members, which makes it the largest Communist Party the world has ever seen, but also the most elite. In other words, the smallest percentage of the 1.3 billion people. You do the math. I'm obviously not strong in that area. Uh, as to difference in rural-urban, China, China has never had as high a proportion of the rural population in the Communist Party as in the urban areas, despite all the Mao rhetoric about being a rural-based revolution. But that difference has become even more uh, acute now. In other words, your chances of becoming a Communist Party member are much better in the city than in the countryside. And the party organization in the countryside is certainly not what it once was. Because they want to get the best and the brightest now in order to prevent organized political challenges to Communist Party rule, they try to co-opt the individuals who might be able to provide leadership to some challenge and bring them into the party, and most of them are in the cities. Should Americans fear a military coup or domestic revolution in China as the Chinese open up uh, their economy? 
Well, I don't think a military coup is likely. China has no history of that. And the military is very happy, thank you, um, learning how to use all their new toys. Um, so you don't have, I don't sense any restiveness in the military. Of course, there is a possible scenario that if for some reason things came apart at the seams in China, there was uh, widespread protest, the leadership split, and the regime kind of fell apart, then the military, as a uh, um, capable group, capable of restoring order, might move in to restore order. Actually, that's what happened after the Cultural Revolution. But the military very quickly then handed over power to civilian authorities, and I think that would happen again. As to the, pu the future, of political change in China. I mean, I think everybody hoped that, and still hopes, that China's leaders would have the vision and the courage to introduce gradual political reforms peacefully from the top down, uh, but actually from the bottom up, meaning they would launch it but it would be introduced at the local levels first and then move up to higher levels, much as the Kuomintang on Taiwan did. And we've all been disappointed that that, has, that process hasn't moved more rapidly. So what happens next is hard to say. Uh, you know, on the one hand, the party has been resilient and there's, I wouldn't say there's any signs of great restiveness. I wouldn't predict a revolution in China in the short term at all. But on the other hand, authoritarian regimes can, in a crisis, they can fall apart quite quickly like a house of cards. And nobody predicted the fall of the Soviet Union. So it's very difficult to predict China's political future too. What do you expect to emerge from President Obama's meeting with President Hu? Well, I think uh, the atmospherics will be very positive, but I don't expect any major breakthroughs uh, in any of the key issues, such as the economic crisis that the world is facing or U.S.-China uh, economic relations, including the currency issue, the imbalanced relationship between U.S. and Chinese economies, um, trade issues. I, I don't expect any big breakthroughs there, nor do I expect any breakthroughs in climate change, which is another issue right at the top of the agenda. I think they'll announce cooperation and good intentions, some projects, but I don't think there's going to be a U.S.-China deal between these two largest emitters that would enable us to salvage the Copenhagen meeting uh, next month. So uh, my expectations actually are fairly low for this, for this meeting in tangible terms. Uh, in the last lecture in the Thompson Forum series, Kaiser Kuo mentioned uh, that the Chinese do not perceive human rights issues 
uh, in the same way that American citizens view those issues. Mm -hmm. uh, do you agree with that assessment and uh, how do human rights issues play out within China? Well, I certainly do agree with that. Uh, the Chinese have appropriated the term human rights, just like they also talk a lot about democracy and being a responsible power and uh, other terms that we use. But uh, it's not, um, we worry a lot about political dissidents, the individuals, outspoken individuals who are picked up and, and punished for their political activism, and that's, first of all, people in China don't even know what's going on because, of course, there's no publicity given to it inside China. And it's not, you know, they wouldn't necessarily sympathize with those individuals. They, um, they might think that they were foolish mm. to take risks like that. But I think that Chinese people do want a government which is not corrupt, um, they do want a government that treats prisoners, including regular criminals, in a humane way. Recently, there have been some stories reported by the media and uh, spread around China on the internet about brutality to Chinese uh, criminals, prisoners in prisons, poor conditions. People were outraged by that. Um, you know, Chinese people are upset about a lot of things related to their current situation, uh, but they wouldn't define them as human rights. Uh, why did China choose to go ahead with the executions of nine Uyghurs so soon before President Obama's visit? And is this an embarrassment uh, to the president, or how did the Chinese view that? I don't think that the Xinjiang situation is really a major uh, problem on the agenda of bilateral relations. Um, the violence in Xinjiang was ethnic conflict. Uyghurs violently attacking Han, Han violently attacking Uyghurs. It obviously shows how completely bankrupt uh, Chinese policy in Xinjiang is. But it's not an issue that I think uh, President Obama is going to push very hard. Certainly it's not an issue that is as salient in America to Americans. Americans care a lot about Tibet. And maybe that's because the Dalai Lama is such a charismatic figure. Maybe it's because Hollywood, people like Richard Gere, you know, are Tibetan Buddhists and they care a lot about Tibet. I don't know, I can't tell you exactly why, but certainly there's a lot more concern in the United States about Tibet than about Xinjiang. Uh, a follow-up to that, uh, can the Chinese government possibly meet demands of the Dalai Lama? Easy. I, I, think, of, I think they can. I think his, his position is a very pragmatic position that does not call for the independence of Tibet. He calls for greater autonomy 
for the Tibetan people within the People's Republic of China. And I think that it is, it reflects this lack of courage and this tremendous insecurity that China's leaders have that they won't negotiate with him because it's only going to get harder after he passes from the scene. Younger Tibetan leaders will not have the same authority that the Tibet, that the Dalai Lama has, and they will not, and they're much more radical in their demands. So it's, um, you know, I think of Arafat now with nostalgia. Uh, and I think, you know, obviously the Dalai Lama is an individual of much greater stature than Yasser Arafat, in my humble opinion. So I, I think it's a, um, a major failure on the part of China's leaders not to deal with the Dalai Lama. And he keeps hoping they'll change their mind. A very different question. Uh, where do you see China's space program in 20 years? Uh, will there be cooperation or competition uh, with the United States? Well, I think if we continue on the trajectory we're, we're on, we, there will be competition. And as the country that has the most assets in space, we will be highly vulnerable. Uh, I think the United States has made a big mistake in not moving forward at the United Nations to negotiate a treaty for the use of space. Because we're, as the most, uh, as the country with the most assets in space, we're the most vulnerable to attacks. And it's just in our national interest to try to do that. Of course, everybody says, and it's true, it would be very difficult to um, verify, but I think it's worth a try. If we don't have that, then certainly the Chinese space program will continue to develop and uh, we will be vulnerable and it'll be a difficult problem to manage. What are the causes of uh, Chinese nationalism, particularly you know, seen in uh, younger Chinese being more nationalist, uh, for example, toward the Japanese. I'm sorry, say that again. Uh, what are the causes of Chinese nationalism, oh. uh, and particularly why are younger Chinese more nationalist, uh, for example, against the Japanese? Well, I'd say there are two main sources of nationalism in China. One is just the spontaneous pride that comes from identification with the country that after being down and out for uh, a century and a half, it's now reviving its traditional uh, prestige, status, and influence in the world, especially in the Asian region. So some of that is just spontaneous national pride and identification, and you see it outside of China, too, not just within the People's Republic of China, from other uh, in the Chinese diaspora. But some of it is also reinforced by the socialization that people have received in schools, the textbooks, 
that they study Chinese textbooks were really um, very distorted vis-a-vis -vis the United States and vis-a-vis -vis Japan. The US ambassador came in a few years ago with sections highlighted, complained about it, and actually the textbooks got revised, so they're not nearly as distorted about American history. But the Japanese haven't been able to achieve that, and the textbooks basically dwell on the brutal occupation of China, and they pretty much stop after World War II and don't say anything about the peace constitution or the uh, modernization and democratization of, of Japan. So the textbooks, then they also have a lot of uh, holidays they celebrate of the Japanese occupation, they movies, popular culture. So a lot of this was orchestrated, especially in the 90s, there was something called the Patriotic Education Campaign that was focused primarily on anti-Japanese themes. So it's both spontaneous and manufactured. Another question on, on democracy that may relate to nationalism. Uh, do you see uh, within developments of Chinese culture or uh, Chinese society uh, any movement toward democracy or the affirmation of democratic ideals and uh, democratic institutions? I do. Uh, I think that the notion of democracy, the democratic norms are very strong in the world today. And China being such an open place, it's inevitable that people would see that those norms are valued by people. And China, Chinese people would like to have a democracy. And they uh, talk about it. But they are also a little afraid of it. And the Chinese Communist Party leaders have persuaded people through decades of uh, official statements and political education that democracy would cause China to fall into chaos. There would be civil war and all of the gains that people have achieved because of the economic reform and opening would be lost. So people are, have kind of bought the party line, if you will that without the party, there would be chaos. And so there's not huge pressure in the country to establish democracy quickly, but people talk about it and say that it's a long-term goal that they want to achieve peacefully and gradually. Okay, we'll end with this question. Uh, what is uh, your uh, view of this uh, statement, and, and the person who wrote this put this statement in uh, quote marks, uh, China practically owns America because the United States is so heavily in debt uh, to China. Well, I think this is um, something that makes Americans very uncomfortable. The fact that because China exports 
so much to us and we buy so much from China and they then take the hard, because they don't have a convertible currency, they take those, uh, this goes into their foreign reserves and they have to find the safest place to park these foreign reserves and they park them in U.S. government securities. They buy our treasury bonds and other U.S. government securities. You know, it's a good thing in that those purchases of U.S. government debt keep our interest rates low. If they were not buying our debt, our interest rates would skyrocket, making life much more difficult for ordinary Americans. On the other hand, it just makes us really uncomfortable. The idea that China's our banker is the way people think about it. But you know, the risk of China suddenly pulling out those reserves is pretty much zero. They don't really have any choice. If they're going to continue to sell to us and have foreign reserves, that is the safest place to park your reserves. Other countries do the same thing. Um, having said that, we all agree that we need to recalibrate our economic relationship so that the trade deficit isn't so big and America is doing its part now by buying less and China needs to do its part by consuming more and not expanding its industry, its industrial production so much that it has all these products that they have to sell abroad. So it's a very complicated situation that's difficult for ordinary folks like me to understand. Um, and there's a lot of misunderstanding about it. In China too, by the way. People in China have become critical of the fact that China is spending the hard-earned dollars, foreign exchange reserves that the Chinese people have produced by all their hard work that they're using it to prop up America. They're saying, why don't we spend it here at home where we need better schools, better healthcare, et cetera. But of course, they also misunderstand it. They think it's one big pot of money. You could spend it abroad or spend it at home, but of course, it's a, there's a very hard wall between these foreign reserves and the domestic budget and the domestic fiscal system. So a lot of misunderstanding about the situation in both countries um, and discomfort about it on both sides. And hopefully this is something that President Obama, President who will be discussing about how to gradually recalibrate our relationship so that we don't have this imbalance, which is not healthy over the long term. Let me remind you that Professor Shirk will be in the green room, which is just uh, off uh, the auditorium to your left, uh, to sign books if you have them for her to sign. Now, please join me in thanking Professor Shirk. Well, thank you very much. Thank you. You've been a great audience. Thank you.